You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Uh, it's weird how time works because on the one hand, time seems to be creeping along during lockdown. We can't get out of it soon enough. And yet we are halfway through uh, up to sermon number six in this 10-week series. Um, we're going to begin where we finished off last week. I said to you that the, the prayer that Paul prays there in chapter 3 and verse 11 to 13 is a transition prayer. It kind of knits the two halves of the book together. Um, in one sense, it summarizes some of what Paul has been saying. In another, it kind of lays the foundation for the next part of the book and the passage that we just heard. And uh, what I know is um, that... You can tell a lot about what people really want from listening to their prayers. If you uh, come to our house and listen to the prayers of our household, you'll learn a lot about what we value, about what we want. If you listen to my boy Judah pray, he's seven now and he is... Uh, such a kind-hearted, what did, my, what did India say to him this morning? You're such a soft-hearted boy, which he is, very compassionate, very empathetic, uh, so very keen to pray for others. But you'll notice that often after he has spent time praying for others, he will end his prayers by asking God for either uh, time to watch a movie tonight or time to play the Nintendo, uh, which is fair enough because God tells us to bring all of our uh, requests to him and no request is too infantile for him to hear it and to receive it and so he welcomes those things but it tells us what we ask for what we pray for tells us a bit about what we value whether it's uh, world peace or more time on the Nintendo it reveals something about what we want so looking at Paul's prayer here let's see what does Paul want He says in verse 11 of chapter 3, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. That's what he's talked about in the passage before. Remember, Satan's been putting all of these hindrances and and blockades in the way of him getting back to Thessalonica. He's anxious for them. He wants to get back to them. So literally the translation there is, May God clear the way for us to come back together. He goes on, May the Lord cause you to increase and overflow with love for one another and for everyone, just as we do for you. And may he make your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Amen. And so you see what what Paul really wants are, are those three things. An opportunity to come back together where they've been torn apart orphaned from one another and then two things he brings together that are often separated in our own experience so he brings together the idea of loving one another not just within the church but everyone that they would be a people that loves freely generously overflowing he'll say later with love for one another and he and he adds to that his desire that they be holy blameless Sanctified is the word he'll use later. Now, often in our experience, particularly in the political sphere, you see these things kept separate. Using the kind of caricature we have of uh, partisan politics, often you will have uh, the left wing of politics associated with love and compassion for people, but lacks morality, lacks personal morals. That's a caricature of left-wing politics. We care for others. We're, we're bleeding hearts. We've, we very much want to see the relief of the poor and the, the provision for people in need. But when it comes to personal morality, we don't have any. The, the other side of the aisle, the caricature is that we, are, we stand for conservative morality. We stand for traditional understandings of personal ethics, but the poor can help themselves. What Paul does here is brings together those two elements and actually makes them dependent on one another. They're not to be separated. A deep love for, concern for, empathy for, provision for one another and personal holiness. I actually like the way the ESV translates this 
um, these couple of verses because it, it, it makes clear the dependence they have on one another. So verse 12 to 13 says in, in the English Standard Version, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that, right, an inextricable kind of link, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before God our Father at the coming of the Lord Jesus. So this is not something we choose based on our political preference or our personality, but something that is vital together to the Christian life. And he's going to hold those two things together throughout the passage that we're looking at this morning. So let's take a look at it in verse 1 to 2 for starters. He says, Additionally then, brothers and sisters, we ask and encourage you in the Lord Jesus, just as you have received instruction from us on how you should live and please God as you are doing, do this even more, for you know what commands we gave you through the Lord Jesus. A couple of things I want to notice from that for those first two verses. Number one, by addressing the commands of Jesus, Paul is obeying the commands of Jesus. So he mentions, we have given you, back when he was with them in Thessalonica, he gave them the commands through the Lord Jesus. That is, he shared with them what Jesus had taught. And in doing that, he is obeying the commands of Jesus. Remember Jesus' final command before he ascended to heaven in Matthew 28. Most of us will be familiar with this passage. He came to his disciples and said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So Paul has obeyed that command from Jesus in going to Thessalonica, in making disciples there, in baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and in teaching them to observe Jesus' commands. This is a faithful apostle. That's the first thing. The second thing, this is something that may or may not have jumped out at you in the text, depending on probably your family of origin and, and how your, kind of, your parents brought you up. But something that, that we should take note of in verse 1. It says, Additionally then, brothers and sisters, we ask and encourage you in the Lord Jesus that you... Uh, as you have received instruction from us on how you should live and please God, as you are doing, do this even more. That idea that we can please God is foreign to many of us. It almost sounds a little bit, I don't know, heretical <laughs> to some of us. Particularly if you have grown up in a family of origin context where your parents were very uh, not easily pleased, where it was difficult to impress them, then you might have grown up with an idea of that God is like that with you, hard, hard to please him. Most of us who are aware of our shortcomings and just how far we fall short of the glory of God find it difficult to think that God is anything but repulsed by us, if we're honest. That because he knows and sees all, even the secret thoughts of our hearts, that obviously all he could be is repulsed. And yet Paul says here that we can actually please God in the way that we live. And he actually says, you Thessalonians are doing that. You are pleasing God in the way that you live. He has this report from Timothy about the love that they have for one another, the faith, the hope. And he says that pleases God as we live out the way that God has made us to live, we please him. That is, we are made in the image of God. And as we reflect that image, we please God. God is not this kind of cold-hearted 
parental figure who, no matter what we do, will never be impressed by us. Rather, he is a God who made us, created us to reflect his glory, to live, in other words, like Jesus lived, and as we live that life of love and holiness, we please him. We fulfill our purpose, and that pleases him. We see this in the next part of our passage. Living the way we are created to live. This is what he says. This is God's will, your sanctification. Remember, sanctification is just a big word for becoming more and more like Jesus. Being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. Fulfilling our calling to reflect God's glory. To live as an image of God is to be sanctified. So this is God's will, your sanctification, that you keep away from sexual immorality, that each of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not with lustful passions like the Gentiles who don't know God. This means one must not transgress against and take advantage of a brother or sister in this manner because the Lord is an avenger of these offenses as we also previously told and warned you. For God has not called us to impurity, but to live in holiness. Consequently, anyone who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now, we'll get into the nitty-gritty of that passage in just a minute, but first, you need to have some kind of theological context for what he's talking about. As a first-century Jew... This would have been very clear in his mind as he's talking about this stuff, maybe not so clear in ours. But for Paul, when he's talking about sanctification, holiness, purity, he has in mind almost certainly this idea of the temple worship of Israel. That God dwelled in the temple and people worshipped and met with God in the temple, and those who were called to be high priests in the temple had to consistently purify themselves so that they could minister in the temple. God's holiness can't abide impurity, can't abide sin. And so the, 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 the high priest had to continually offer sacrifices, go through rites and rituals in order to purify themselves so that they could minister in that temple. That's the kind of language that Paul is using here, not just about high priests, but about all of God's people. Because he knows, as I hope you do, that all of us now in the new covenant of grace have been welcomed not only into God's family, but welcomed into a vocation of, high, of, a, of a high priestly calling. That each one of us has been made priests of God. And so he, he makes this applicable to all people. Not only that have we been called to, to do that, that priestly vocation, called into that, that commitment to worshipping God with all of our lives, but, but, but the temple is now not only located in Israel, but actually the temple is each one of us. Whereas God used to dwell in the holy of holies of the temple, now God dwells in each one of us by his spirit. And so if we're going to live as a temple, a, a house of the Holy Spirit, then we must purify ourselves. We must have a commitment to holiness. For Paul, this has a direct implication on our sexuality what we do with our bodies. He makes this really explicit, this whole kind of picture of the temple thing in, in 1 Corinthians 6. Here's what he says. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. This idea that the Spirit dwells within each believer 
means for Paul that we have this obligation to reign in our bodies, to glorify God with our bodies. I once heard a, like a, or watched a, like a, a social media influencer or whatever um, talking about how everyone should be a vegan and she referenced this, not a Christian as far as I know, but this has become part of our kind of cultural language. She referenced this, my body is a temple. Uh, my body is a temple, therefore we should only eat raw vegetables or whatever. And you know, if that's your thing, that's fine. But that's not what he's talking about here specifically. He's addressing in the Corinthian church massive sexual sin. And he's saying, don't you get it? You can't be a temple of the Holy Spirit and then just let your body run wild. Temples are places of purity, places of holiness, and each one of you is a temple. And then you would have had, like speaking to the Thessalonian church, they, they bring their own kind of pagan understanding of temples. And this is where it becomes really important for them because in Thessalonica you had temples that doubled as brothels. And this was just normal and accepted, even encouraged, that you would go to the temple and as part of your worship you would sleep with a prostitute. That's how you worship. You have full-time temple prostitutes just there for you to worship. And so you've got a bunch of people in Thessalonica who have turned away from those pagan ways, as Paul said in, in, in chapter 1. But, you know, for some of them, that kind of worship was kind of the best thing about their religion. <laughs> that was the best thing about going to church. And so he warns them. And he says, we've warned you before. This is not something you mess with. Holiness is part of what it means to follow Jesus. And Jesus' will and ways for you are very different from the culture that you've come out of in Thessalonica and, yes, in Melbourne. And so that's the kind of theological framework, the imagery he has in mind as he speaks to them about these things. Now, let's talk about his instructions, his, his instructions for pure sex. Let's get into the, the nitty-gritty of it. There's, there's three of them here at least. And while they might be uncomfortable, they're definitely not unclear. So, number one, he says, no sexual practice should happen outside of the union of a husband and a wife. No sexual practice outside the union of husband and wife. Let's look at verse 3. <clears throat> For you know what commands we gave you through the Lord Jesus. This is God's will, your sanctification, that you keep away from sexual immorality. Sexual immorality there refers to all sex outside of God's designated space in which sex becomes holy. So God has created sex. He is pro-sex. He came up with it in the first place. And his design for it is that it happens in the context of the marriage of a man and a woman. And sexual immorality, the Greek word porneia, uh, where we get the word pornography from. That Greek word porneia is like a catch-all term. It's an umbrella term. It's a junk drawer term for all sex outside of marriage. So this is what uh, one commentator that I was reading this past week uh, wrote. Jeffrey Weidmer says, Weimer says, most scholars understand the Greek word porneia to refer in a general way to all kinds of sexual misconduct, including both premarital and extramarital sex, as well as homosexual activity. Paul knew that he needed to use a broad-ranging term for this because if he said it's this, this and this, then we would just find other things to do. 
when it comes to morality, we can very easily say, well, yeah, God's will is that we keep away from sexual immorality. Who's sexual immorality? And we seek to define that for ourselves. This is not a subjective thing. This is something that God commands and gives us clear instructions of. Sex is for marriage between a man and a woman. I remember in my last role, I, uh, my whole church congregation was university students, and so the subject of sex and sex before marriage was just like the thing you did on every day of the week because it's all that most of, the, especially these guys that I was close to were thinking about and wrestling with. And there was one guy, a very gifted guy, a very dear friend who had started seeing a girl at university who wasn't a Christian and they were obviously having sex. Um, and, uh, and I remember him coming to me and saying, uh, by the way, it was obvious because he told me, but it was obvious without him telling me, okay? So uh, he came to me and he was really wrestling with what he was meant to do next. He, wasn't, he didn't feel like he was in the right university course, like most of the people at university in first year. And, um, and so he was, saying, he was trying to figure out what is he meant to do? Is he meant to go and work? Is he meant to have some time off? Is he meant to change courses? And he was kind of addressing it as this wrestle to figure out what God's will was for his life. And I said to him, I don't know what course you're meant to do. Maybe there's 10 different courses that God would be happy for you to do. I'm not sure what God's will is for you at university, but there is a passage that tells us very clearly what God's will is for you in terms of your sexuality, and it says it right here, verse 3 of chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians. This is God's will. Really clear. No tea leaves, no impressions, no audible voice, no still small voice, just black and white text. This is God's will, your sanctification, that you keep away from sexual immorality. And we can do, and we do, obfuscate this very much, try and make it as blurry as we can, but really, honestly, there's nothing blurry about it. Paul says, this is God's will. God wants you to be sanctified. God made you to be holy. He made you to reflect his glory, and, and, and what has happened is you have mucked up that mirror. You've smeared it with all kinds of stuff, and the clearing of that reflection is the process of sanctification. That sanctification happens as you commit to living holy lives. And that means necessarily that you stay away from, separate yourself from sexual immorality. All right, he goes on. The second thing he addresses in verse Four to five, he says, maintain self-control because sex is not about self. Sex is not about self. Verse four to five, he says this. That each one of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not with lustful passions like the Gentiles who don't know God. Here's the problem we've got in our culture. And by the way, the culture that we're in right now really isn't dissimilar from the culture that the Thessalonians were living in in the first century. If you know anything about Greek history and you know about Greek sexual ethics before Christianity came along, then you know it was like it's enough to make most of us blush even today. The kind of thing that was accepted, even encouraged. So he says, unlike those pagans who don't know God, who don't know that they've been made in his image to reflect his glory, you need to control yourselves. Control your own body. It's yours. Control it in holiness and honor. Here's the problem we have in our understanding of sex today is where this kind of Christian ethic comes and smash it up against our current understanding because we have today this in incredibly broad-ranging problem with sexual abuse. 
This is starting to be exposed more and more, thank God. We have the Me Too movement and we have exposés of people in their just tragic practice of sexual abuse. The problem is that we have this whole issue with it, but at the same time we're trying to maintain this understanding of sex where it's really sex is not a big deal. Sex is just what mammals do. It's just what, it's just what we do as animals, right? Sex is just, it's, it's casual sex. It's not a big deal. Back in the days, people used to get hung up on it, but that's because they were prudish and Christian, and now we're just, we're free of all of that. Sex is not a big deal, we say. And we also say that sex is mainly about me. It's my sexual identity. It's my sexual proclivity. It's my desires, my preferences. Sex is about the individual. So it's not a big deal, and it's all about me. That's why we have the issues that we have today. That's the kind of milieu, the incubator for sexual abuse. And we don't know how to deal with that because on the one hand we're repelled by sexual abuse, absolutely repulsed by it, but on the other hand we want to maintain that it's not a big deal. Those two things don't go together. If it's not a big deal, then why are you upset about it? What you have as you look around the culture, you just ask the question, when you look around at our culture and you, 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 you survey our, our kind of cultural understanding of what sex is, do you see holiness and honour? Or do you see lustful passions? Paul says the solution to the problem is that you need to know God. You need to know God. God is the one who imbues you as a person with honour and dignity and worth. The reason that someone taking advantage of you sexually is wrong is because you are an image bearer of God. That's the problem. That image has been tainted and abused and smeared in the name of someone else's personal gratification. All of this... All of this grieves God deeply. He made us for so much more than this. Let's look at that that third part of what he says, the third instruction in the first part of verse 6. He says, this means one must not transgress against and take advantage of a brother or sister in this manner. You must not. If you are to be someone who is walking in God's will, sanctified, holy, a priest, a temple of the Holy Spirit, all of that is absolutely incongruent with, diametrically opposed to taking advantage of a brother or a sister in this manner. Those two things cannot go together. That is a massive challenge to us today in our understanding and practice of sexuality, but it was to them in Thessalonica as well. Again, the context that these guys have been saved out of was sexually abhorrent. When he talks about taking advantage of, that's a really good literal translation of the Greek. It's, it's referring to at least the practice of adultery, sleeping with someone else's wife, or sleeping with anyone else outside of your marriage union. But it probably means more than just that. It probably goes beyond adultery into abuse. In first century Greece, it was absolutely expected that if you were 
a, a slaveholder, if you had people working for you in your household, you could go to them and relieve yourself sexually anytime, anyway. No one would bat an eyelid. Slaves, household servants were essentially just receptacles for your sexual release. Paul says, if you understand that everyone is made in the image of God and that God is calling you to reflect his image more and more, then you can't take advantage of a brother or a sister. You can't do it and call yourself a Christian. What all of this amounts to is, is this. Apart from the knowledge of God and an understanding of the gospel, sex can be the cause of deep and lasting shame and devastation. All of us know that. But when the gospel shapes our thoughts and words and deeds, then sexual intimacy can flourish. Don't make this mistake that people so often make, that God looks down on people having sex and he's just repulsed by it because, ugh, gross. That's not the way that God views sexuality. He gave it to us. He invented it. He made it pleasurable. He gave it as a gift. The problem is that we have turned it and weaponized it and made it a destructive force. Last night we as a family sat around a fire pit in our backyard and we enjoyed the warmth of that fire. The purpose of fire is to warm us and bring us together. And yet when it's misused, you have Black Saturday. In that same backyard, we have a bunch of fruit trees. I've referenced this before. We've got fruit trees, all right? It's a little backyard. There's some lawn and then there's a garden bed with fruit trees. And uh, Renee has been working all week, cutting them all back, trying to set them up for a good harvest this coming year. And I'm expecting a better harvest than last year because I did something. Ever since we moved into this house, I've had this ongoing battle with the lawn getting into the garden bed. We've got this lawn that's just like on steroids. It's this amazing lawn, but it just goes everywhere. It has these runners, and they just run all over the place, and they come up and into these, the garden bed where the fruit trees are and take it over. And what I understand happens is that the grass just takes all the best stuff, and the fruit trees suffer as a result. And so ever since we moved there, I've had this ongoing battle, and for most of the time we've lived there, I've just been pulling the grass out. And anyone who knows anything about gardening knows that it's just a complete waste of my time because particularly in about this time of year and into spring, by the next morning, the grass is back. It's like a horror movie. And, uh, and so during this extended period of leave I've just had, I, just, I declared war and I spent a couple of days and I took apart all of the garden beds and I got uh, right down into underneath all of the mulch and I ripped every single one of those runners up from the roots. It took days just ripping all of them out of the ground. We have this big green bin. I filled two of them just with those runners that had got uh, into the, the, the garden beds. And then I got a shovel and I dug these trenches. It was like warfare. Dug these trenches and put the timber sleepers down to as a barrier against that grass from getting back into the to the garden bed and even with all of that the occasional bit of grass grows up but my expectation is and I can already see it in the citrus trees that are fruiting already the, the, the crop will be better for it 
there will be a flourishing of fruit as a result of that pulling out of the weeds and the institution of those barriers. That's how I conceive of God's commandments to us in general and specifically when it comes to sexuality. He puts in place these barriers, these firm barriers so that we would flourish. He calls us to tear out from the roots the weeds that have grown up out of our own sinfulness and self-centeredness so that the fruit will flourish. He wants us to flourish. This is what I've been convinced of after many years, going from seeing God's commands as him up in heaven just swinging a hammer and telling us off to being a loving father who tells us everything he tells us for our good and for our flourishing. Now, because God deeply desires our flourishing because he wants to see us as, a, as fruit trees laden with fruit, sweet, enjoyable, satisfying fruit. Because he's committed to that vision for us, he warns us against disregarding his commands. He warns us against just taking out all of the, the, the barriers and letting everything go. He warns us because he's committed to our flourishing. He says, verse uh, 6 to 8, this means one must not transgress against and take advantage of a brother or sister in this manner because the Lord is an avenger of all of these offenses. As we also previously told and warned you, for God has not called us to impurity, but to live in holiness. Consequently, anyone who rejects this does not reject man, but God who gives you his spirit. If we choose to hear these very clear commands from God and reject them, we're not just rejecting the commands. We're rejecting God himself. This is exactly what Jesus says himself. Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. And he goes on in verse 21 to 24, the one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my father. And I also will love him and will reveal myself to him. Judas, not that one, said to him, Lord, how is it you're going to reveal yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Temple of the Holy Spirit. The one who doesn't love me will not keep my words. The word that you hear is not mine, but is from the Father who sent me. The warning from Paul and from Jesus before him is that if we hear God's commands and reject them, we don't just reject the command. We reject the giver of the command. We reject God himself. What I want us to do this morning as we come to terms with these commands of God and as they challenge us and challenge what for us, for many of us, is, is, is deeply challenging stuff to begin with. As we, as we come to grips with these commands, I want us to ask not just are they true. The first step to, is to ask, is this word true? Is this what this guy is saying at the front? Is it true? I want you to trust the trustworthiness of these words. I was reading through the original language earlier this week in the, in the Koine Greek, just trying to make sure, is what I'm saying really what Paul was saying? And it, and it really is. I think we can trust the truth of these words, that's not the issue. I, I want us to ask ourselves, not do we see these, these commands as true, but do we see them as good? 
Do we see them as good? In giving these commands to us is God's intention for our good. Does he give us these commands so that we can flourish, so that we can reflect his image as image bearers of God, so that we can live more and more like his son Jesus, who is what we are all created to be? Not just is it true, but is it good? This is exactly how it was described and explained to me by, I want to say a friend of mine. It's like an online friend of mine who's, uh, who's same-sex attracted. He's a guy who is attracted to other men, always has been. And he refers to himself in the nomenclature of that kind of, um, in, that, in that, the culture that he moves in, it's a, he's known as a side B Christian. And side B means that he, he identifies as same-sex attracted, uh, has always done so, uh, but believes that the Bible tells him, commands him, not to act on those desires. And so he's committed to lifelong celibacy. Uh, he's about my age, maybe slightly younger. And as he interacts, which is a big part of his life, interacting with people around him who look at him and pity him. People who believe that he should be fulfilling all of his desires and not inhibiting them, not controlling his own body. What he says to those people who pity him as he, as he kind of, um, as he uh, um, restricts himself sexually what he says to them is that he believes that in restricting himself, because he is obeying God's commands, he is living the best life he can. He is enjoying a flourishing life, not an inhibited one. And he truly believes that, even though it's difficult, very difficult for him to live this way, he believes that in so doing, he is enabling himself to be all that God created him to be. He is really working for his flourishing. We need to ask ourselves, as my friend has, not just are these commands true, but are they good? Now, I am definitely out of time, which I expected, but we've got a little part of this passage to go, and I, I really want to, at least to read it. Uh, how about this? I'm going to read it, and then just give me an example of how I see this working in our community right now, and how I'm encouraged, all right? Uh, so a couple of minutes now on, on verse 9 to 12. He says about brotherly love. You don't need me to write to you, because you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. In fact, you are doing this toward all the brothers and sisters in the entire region of Macedonia. But we encourage you, brothers and sisters, to do this even more. To seek to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, so that you may behave properly in the presence of outsiders and not be dependent on anyone. All right, a couple of things on that. First of all, Paul understands that the way they approach sexuality and the way they approach work is going to be a testimony, a witness to those around them. So this is one of the reasons, motivations for, for listening to him and obeying God's commands is how it affects the people around them, what a witness it is to the people around them. He references there in the last couple of verses about um, working hard, minding their own business. It's probably because we understand from the context, probably because some of the believers there in Thessalonica have seen how everyone has been providing for one another and sharing resources, and so they've stopped working. They're, they're just bludging. Uh, of the goodwill of others and so he reminds them and he'll do this again in chapter 5 you got to keep working hard don't take advantage of the generosity of your brothers and sisters the big idea though is just that they should practically love one another and it's specifically here about financial provision for one another there should not be anyone in their church who is going without because all of the Christians should see the abundance that God has blessed them with and so provide for those who are in need around them this should be normal church life. 
looking where there are needs and then gladfully, cheerfully fulfilling those needs out of the overflow of a sense of gratitude for what God has given us. Now, I just want to say this picture of the church is so beautiful and the, the, the joy I experience as I look around our church and see this being enacted is beautiful. It's the best thing I get to do as being part of this church is just see the ways in which people are loving one another. And I think we've seen this, a kind of a spike in this through this pandemic as we've all seen and had eyes to see where people are are, are in need. We've become more aware of the needs of those around us. I could talk to you at length with examples of how this has manifested itself Uh, If you get a chance to talk to Phyllis, maybe ask her about how she's been blessed uh, in practical ways recently by the church. This last week has a great example of it because uh, at our Tuesday morning prayer meeting, Suzanne shared with us that... uh, that Elizabeth, you know Elizabeth who's been here since the beginning of the church, Elizabeth's uh, grandson, Theon, uh, back in Kenya, uh, he, he was in great need. So we first came across Theon uh, a couple of years ago when we heard that he had had an accident. He had fallen over, broken his arm badly. Uh, he already struggles with, with low calcium levels, as many people do in that part of the world, suffering from lack of nutrition. Brittle bones, he breaks his arm. He doesn't just break it, he compound fractures it. So we're talking about bone through skin kind of stuff. Um, Does not have, it should be obvious to all, does not have the kind of access to medical help that we have in our context. So he suffers badly as a result of this for a long period of time. Eventually, he... The, the, the arm goes gangrenous, okay? Um, and, and, and that just means he has an infection. That means his flesh is rotting. The flesh on his body is rotting and eating itself. Um, so we get a call to prayer a few years ago for this. Eventually, Theong undergoes an operation, has his arm amputated, well, we heard on Tuesday, which just outraged me. It, it is a, an outrage that this kind of thing happens at all. Uh, Theong fell over again. He broke his broken arm. So what little part of his arm is left was broken again. Just talk about compound fracture. I mean, just compounding the, 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 the pain, the injustice. And we heard that in order for him to have this operated on, even for him to receive any kind of pain relief, would cost a couple of thousand dollars and a a trip to to a specialist hospital where he could do that. And that kind of money, you may as well say it's going to cost $5 million. It's just, it's, it's monopoly money. It's dreamland stuff. So we just received this. I mean, we received this as the call of God on our lives. And a couple of calls were made, and within, I don't know, an hour, that money was on its way to Theon, and we heard the next day that he had undergone a six-hour operation and that he's now doing well. Why does God give you surplus of anything? It's for that. If you think to yourself, why am I living in Caroline Springs in a five-bedroom house with money pouring out of my bank account and ordering Uber Eats whenever I feel hungry, and he's in Kenya with not enough calcium to make his bones strong, the answer is you have that extra so that you can bless him and communicate God's love to him through that. The word we got was that Theong was just praising God. He couldn't believe that there are a bunch of Christians in the other side of the world who just wanted to freely bless him in that way. I tell this to you not to say that Red Door is a great church. This doesn't prove that. It proves, I think, that the kingdom of 
God is among us. And that God's will for us is that we be sanctified, made more like his son, who gave himself for the sake of the poor. Praise God. Praise God. Keep doing it, Lord. Paul's prayer for his church and for our church is that we would overflow. We would overflow in love for one another and that we would control ourselves, that we would live in holiness. I was reading through my little own little yearly journey through the Bible yesterday and I came to Psalm 19 and I just thought, this is how I want to pray for our church as we close the book on this passage I want to pray from Psalm 19, uh, which speaks of the goodness of God's commands and the call for us to live in holiness. So you might like to bow your heads and I'll just read uh, as a way of praying. Our dear Heavenly Father, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Forgive me my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then will I be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.